Rocks. Today we are going to look at earthquakes. Um, just kind of to go straight in and give kind of a brief overview of the chapter here, what we need to know. We need to be able to identify the parts of an earthquake. So that particularly comes up in like kind of short questions where you'd label the diagram. We should know this from the junior search. So we're just labeling focus, epicenter, fault lines. Um, then we need to go on to the global distribution of earthquakes. We need to look at how we measure earthquakes. So specifically looking at prediction of earthquakes and how to reduce the effects of them. Then we need to look at the effects of an earthquake. So damage to infrastructure, death, liquefaction, tsunamis. And then I like to put a lot of focus on our case study of Japan in 2011. It's just a devastating tsunami. I'm sure we all know about it. Let's just get straight into the content here. So looking at the global distribution of earthquakes, this is where you're hopefully going to start to see the reoccurring theme of our foundational knowledge of plate tectonics coming in and kind of bleeding into all the chapters. So when we're looking at the global distribution of earthquakes, we're going to use our prior knowledge around plate tectonics to build this answer. I'm not going to go into this in too much detail covering the content here but the like the route you'd kind of go down was uh, is you discuss kind of convergent plate boundaries and how the process of subduction leads to the sudden release of pressure in the form of earthquakes at times you could give an example there of nepal 2015 then you could go on to discuss um passive plate boundaries so when they're sliding past each other the plates sometimes lock in place once again that is that sudden plate movement is released in the form of an earthquake and we could look at the San Andreas Fault there and how kind of often earthquakes occur along that passive plate boundary. Finally, then we discuss kind of divergent plate boundaries, how we'd kind of expect to see shallow depth earthquakes here. Um, when it's a shallow depth earthquake, we'd expect to see more damage. So like just because that is because the focus is closer to the kind of earth's surface and then this kind of happens along East African Rift Valley. And moving on to the second bit of content that we have to cover. So we're going to look to look at kind of the prediction of earthquakes. And when we're looking at the prediction of earthquakes, we need to, the thing we kind of need to focus on is the reliability, if that's a word, I'm not sure. We're going to go with it. it is the reliability of that prediction method. So the three ways that we're going to discuss today are behavior of animals, historical records, and measuring rock stress. So first one, behavior of animals. So some people actually believe that animal animal behavior can be used to predict seismic activity. So I was in Thailand a couple of years ago and we went to one of these elephant sanctuaries. These are like the places where they kind of take in the elephants that have been abused by the other for other elephant camps in the country. And like there's no animal cruelty there. The animal the elephants have their own open space to kind of roam and you get to come and just visit the elephants, feed them. They say wash them, but like if they get in the river, you can get in the river with the elephants. It's a really good experience, and obviously there's no animal cruelty involved. But anyway, um, one of the elephants there that day was called Ellie, and they've had the elephant for like 15 years. And um, our guide for the day was telling us a story in 2004 when the tsunami hit, that the night before the tsunami hit, Ellie actually took sprinting off out of the camp and obviously they couldn't just stop the elephant from running away and Ellie the elephant ran up to the top of a hill and refused to come down that night like stayed up there that whole night and they were baffled about why the elephant was running away they thought maybe it was just kind of like traumatic past Um, it was just like a coping mechanism for it and anyway the next day the tsunami hit 
the earthquake obviously hit the Indian Ocean and the tsunami came rushing in, into Thailand and they actually believe that Ellie was just reacting to kind of the seismic activity there. Scientific es- it's a great story, but scientific evidence suggests otherwise. They're um like scientists are kind of just presuming that animals are responding to P waves that humans can't actually feel. So this behavior of animals is an unreliable way of predicting earthquakes, but it could possibly provide humans with a valuable couple of sec- seconds warning to kind of maybe get under a table or like move themselves to a safer position. Secondly, we're going to look at historical records. So some scientists believe that they can study the patterns of seismic activity in an area. And scientists actually believe that they were studying the patterns of earthquakes in the Andes mountain range in Argentina. So they thought that they, up to I think about 10 years ago, they actually believed that they had identified a pattern of earthquakes happening like every, say, 150 days or whatever. That's not the actual number. But um, this again is proving to kind of be unreliable as each plate plate movement kind of changes the dynamics along the plate boundary so if you imagine we have our like cookies out again and we're looking we're at that passive plate boundary where the plates are sliding past each other like when they slide past each other bits of the cookie breaks off this happens at the plate boundary so the dynamics change so even if there is kind of a pattern of seismic activity the dynamic is always different along the plate boundary so we're going to get different results every time then again historical records quite unreliable Finally, moving on to probably the most reliable way we can measure earthquakes or predict earthquakes, which is measuring rock stress. So like scientists use instruments such as strainometers, tilt meters and GPS kind of monitors to monitor the buildup of stress along plate boundaries. So see if that see if stress is being applied, by the plates pushing together, sliding past or pulling apart. And this is evident in California when scientists actually predict that. The next major earthquake in the area is going to be by the year 2032 and along the San Andreas fault line. And then again, we're making reference to our movie with the rock in it, San Andreas. That's that's where they're kind of getting that information from there. Really quickly, we're going to have to discuss the factors affecting damage. So we could look at economic development of countries, population density and the time of day that the earthquake hits. Just kind of focusing on the economic development of countries, we could kind of all we have to do is compare similar earthquakes from like a developed country like japan and then like a more developing or a less developed country haiti so in last year in japan there was a 6.4 richter scale earthquake and zero people died they were really prepared they have really good infrastructure there which we're going to discuss as we get further down this podcast then we could go to an earthquake that hit haiti in 2010 it was seven on the richter scale granted it was a bit bigger but 230,000 people died so that just shows how economic development of a country and the infrastructure they have pl- they have in place drastically affects the damage that can be caused by an earthquake. Now we're going to move on to discuss how we reduce the effects of an earthquake and there's kind of three things we need to highlight here. Earthquake proof infrastructure, efficient urban planning and early warning systems. So earthquake proof infrastructure we're going to see this in kind of more developed areas such as like Japan and California and this is when there's kind of strict building regulations in place in the area so high-rise buildings they have to be a bit more elastic and kind of the buildings have to be able to sway with the earthquake rather than being rigid and stuck in place and foundations are also built on stone rather than soil to prevent like liquefaction taking place and then the frames are like reinforced with steel but this all comes back to these um 
strict building regulations. So like in California, for example, if you're a building contractor and you get the contract to build a building, if that building doesn't adhere to the strict building regulations, you are liable to be sued for that building. So if that building collapses during an earthquake, your company's getting sued, you're screwed. It's not it's not the person who owns the building. You, you're taking on that responsibility. That's where these strict building regulations kind of enable this earthquake-proof infrastructure. Secondly, we need to look at efficient urban planning. This is kind of common sense. So like towns and buildings are built with enough space in between them to prevent this kind of domino effect of the buildings falling and collapsing on top of each other. But more importantly here, well-planned towns will have like schools and hospitals, essential services built kind of out of the areas that are most likely to be affected by an earthquake. And then finally, we have this idea of early warning systems. So these just are systems in place that alert people before an earthquake arrives. Japan has probably the most technologically, technologically, that's, I can't even say that word, developed earthquake system in the world where it, it I think it affects, detects up to 85% of earthquakes that are going to hit the region. Um, people have like an app on their phone that they can check and they get messages to their phone say there's an earth, there's a 5.5 earthquake on the way just to kind of brace themselves. Um, they invested up to $1 billion in it after the tsunami that hit the country in 2011, which we're going to discuss next. Last bit of content we're going to cover here. I know we're eating into time, but we're going to look at our case study, which I like to look at Japan 2011. So it was a 9.0 Richter scale that hit off the coast, earthquake that hit off the coast of Japan. It occurred along the subduction zone of the Eurasian and Pacific plate boundary. It's important we're making reference to the plates. We've studied them for, what, four chapters now. So there was an early warning system in place, but and the detection system actually gave the citizens of Japan, the residents, a one-minute warning that the earthquake was going to hit, which is, it's actually quite a decent amount of time for them. So it allowed trains and kind of dangerous production lines to actually stop in the city, preventing more deaths. The, re the residents received a text to warn them, and there actually was a tsunami warning as well, so it predicted a 20-meter high wave. This kind of gave people a false sense of, secu false sense of security, as around the city they have 20-meter high tsunami walls people thought the walls would withstand the tsunami. Going on to the effects of the earthquake, it was actually a 39 meter high tsunami that traveled 10 kilometers inland, obviously broke over the tsunami's walls, causing extreme damage and death. So 18,000 deaths, $200 billion worth of damage done. So damage to infrastructure, roads, buildings, all that stuff. There was up to 1,000 aftershocks felt in the area, which the strongest one was 7.9. So these aftershocks actually caused more damage than the initial earthquake as like infrastructure's already kind of been broken down. I like to focus on, I just find it interesting, this kind of meltdown in the Fukushima nuclear power plant. So the earthquake caused a meltdown in the power plant, um, which was just detrimental to the land around it. So radioactive waste still leaks into the Pacific Ocean today as a result of this meltdown in 2011. So it destroyed habitats. The land is inhabitable. People don't live around the area anymore. And it's just still causing damage to the Pacific Ocean. I've I've had one student in the past make this really good reference to the, the damage it's doing in the Pacific Ocean. And then fully developing their point by talking to how it's destroying ecotourism in the region so coral reefs are being destroyed and ecotourism is being destroyed off the off the coast of japan there in the pacific ocean as a result of this meltdown in the fukushima power plant in 2011. so exam breakdown first kind of 30 marker that can be asked here is the global distribution of volcanoes what we need to discuss here is convergent 
divergent and passive plate boundaries, five SRPs each. We make reference to lots of examples here. We name the plates and we name the earthquakes that were involved in that earthquake taking place. Second way this can kind of be asked as a 30 marker is the prediction and reducing effects. So prediction, we'd give seven SRPs. We discuss behavior of animals, historical records, and measuring rock stress. Most importantly, we discuss the reliability of each prediction method here. So we discuss behavior of animals is not that reliable, whereas rock stress is reliable. Then we'd go on to discuss another first, another seven SRPs on how we reduce the effects of earthquakes. So we discuss urban planning, um, good infrastructure, early warning systems. We give examples of that in California and Japan. And then maybe we compare the effects of um, the effects of an earthquake on an economic developed city like Japan. And then maybe Haiti would quickly discuss how that's going to be destroyed there. And then finally, the effects of an earthquake. So we discuss damage to infrastructure, tsunami, deaths. And um, we talk about our Japan case study. We talk about liquefaction maybe in New Zealand. And we make reference to lots of examples here. And I'm going to leave it there.